0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. you need to close your Bibles and take out a blank sheet of paper, we're going to have a quiz. I want to see how smart y'all are. 32 questions. 32 questions. We'll see how y'all stack up against the rest of, the, of America. Okay, don't run away, Glenda, just because you get a test. Not, I said Glenda. I saw her out there in the hall hiding. <laughs> it's test time. A couple of announcements. Uh, family night's going to be December 4th. And then on November 6th, which is closer, that's when we're going to finish up this uh, uh, shoebox ministry. And there, that uh, I think that's a Saturday, and they're going to be uh, boxing up and wrapping up the boxes that particular uh, Saturday. Okay, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer before we get started. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to study your word and that as we study your word, God the Holy Spirit uses it to uh, challenge us, to teach us, to edify us, to uh, strengthen us spiritually, that we might uh, learn how to think as you would have us to think, that we might live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we might be able to concentrate and focus on it and that uh, God the Holy Spirit would use it in our lives and that we would be responsive to what he teaches us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to run through this test. It's not too hard. It's kind of multiple choice. How come that didn't work? Maybe I have to do that. Okay, there we go. Okay, first question. this is the Pew Research Forums uh, quiz that they... Gave to Americans to see if they, what they knew about their own religious beliefs. First question is, which Bible figure is most closely associated with the Exodus? Job, Elijah, Moses, or Abraham? You can just write down your answer. Don't overthink. Which Bible figure is most closely associated with the Exodus? Job, Elijah, Moses, and Abraham? What was Mother Teresa's religion? Catholic? Catholic? Jewish, Buddhist, Mormon, or Hindu? Catholic, Jewish, Bu- Buddhist, Mormon, and, or, I mean, or Hindu. Mother Teresa's religion. Okay, the uh, third question. Which of the following is not part of the Ten Commandments? Three of these are in the Ten Commandments. One is not. Pick the one that's not. Do not commit adultery. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do not steal. Keep the Sabbath holy. Fourth, when does the Jewish Sabbath begin? Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? When does the Jewish Sabbath begin? Fifth question, is Ramadan... The Hindu Festival of Lights, a Jewish Day of Atonement, the Islamic Holy Month. Hindu Festival of Lights, Jewish Day of Atonement, or the Islamic Holy Month. What is Ramadan? Sixth, which of the following best describes the Roman Catholic teaching about the bread and wine used for communion? Now, I've corrected this a little bit. The original question said Catholic. You've got to say Roman Catholic. Catholic means universal. We're all Catholic. And it's not communion, technically. It's mass. So. But we'll let them slide a little bit. <clears throat> the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ, or the bread and wine are only symbols of the body and blood of Christ, which is the Roman Catholic teaching about Uh, the bread and wine used for the mass. Incidentally, 40% of Catholics got this wrong. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Seventh, in which religion are Vishnu and Shiva worshipped? In which religion are Vishnu and Shiva worshipped? Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, which one? Uh, Eighth, which Bible figure is most closely associated with remaining obedient to God while suffering? Moses, Job, Elijah, or Abraham? Moses, Job, Elijah, or Abraham? Which one is most associated with uh, remaining obedient to God while suffering? Oops. What was Joseph Smith's religion? Now, don't show, I wonder how many of y'all are going, who was Joseph (laughs) Smith? What was Joseph Smith's religion? Catholic, Jewish, Buddhist, Mormon, or Hindu? Catholic, Jewish, Buddhist, Mormon, or Hindu? Joseph Smith. Okay, number ten. I'm just not good at manipulating uh, According to the rules, and this is a good question. According to the rules of the U.S. Supreme Court, is a public school teacher permitted to lead a class in prayer or not? Is a public school teacher permitted by the Supreme Court to lead a class in prayer or not? Yes, it's permitted. No, it's not permitted. Which one? Next question. According to rulings by the U.S. Supreme Court, is a public school teacher permitted to read from the Bible as an example of literature or not? Yes, it's permitted, or no, it's not permitted. Just write yes or no. Twelfth, what religion do most people in Pakistan consider themselves? What religion do most people in Pakistan consider themselves? Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, or Christian? Is Pakistan Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, or Christian? 13. What was the name of the person whose writings and actions inspired the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther, Thomas Aquinas, or John Wesley? Martin Luther, Thomas Aquinas, John Wesley. Which one inspired the Protestant Reformation? Fourteen, which of these religions aims at nirvana, the state of being free from suffering, Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism? Which one aims for nirvana, Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism? Fifteenth, which one of these preachers participated in the period of of religious activity known as the First Great Awakening. First Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, Billy Graham. Sixteenth, do you happen to know which of these is the king of the gods in ancient Greek mythology? Zeus, Mars, or Apollo? King of the gods in ancient Greek mythology: Zeus, Mars, or Apollo? Seventeenth, this not, not multiple choice. What's the name of the holy book in Islam? What is the name of their holy book in Islam? Eighteen Is an atheist someone who believes in God, someone who does not believe in God, or someone who is unsure whether God exists? Is an atheist someone who believes in God, someone who does not believe in God, or someone who is unsure if God exists? And nineteen looks for the definition of agnostic. Is an agnostic someone who believes in God Someone who does not believe in God or someone who is unsure whether God exists. Okay, 20. What's the first book of the Bible? What, what's the first book of the Bible? What'd you say, Tom? <laughs> what's the first book of the Bible? Yeah, in the in in the directions to the people who gave out the thing, it it also gave the Hebrew name in case they were talking to somebody Jewish and they just knew it by the Hebrew name. Twenty one. Um, tell me the names of the first four books of the New Testament. What are the first four books in the New Testament? And I'll give you a hint. None of them are named Larry, Curly, or Moe. First four books of the New Testament. 22, where, according to the Bible, was Jesus born? Where, according to the Bible, was Jesus born? Bethlehem, Jericho, Jerusalem, or Nazareth? Uh, 23, when was the Mormon religion founded? Before... The year 1200 A.D., between 1200 and 1800, or sometime after 1800. Before 1200, between 1200 and 1800, or after 1800. 23, the Book of Mormon tells the story of Jesus Christ appearing to people in what area of the world? Well, yeah, I was renumbering, so I didn't do a good job of that, did I? So just number them 23A and 23B, and then write the answer, okay? It's a two-part question, both related to Mormonism. 23A, when was the Mormon religion founded? Before 1200, between 1200 and 1800, sometime after 1800. Uh, 23b, the Book of Mormon tells the story of Jesus Christ appearing to people in what area of the world? The Americas, Middle East, or Asia? And then 24 is, which of these religious groups traditionally teaches that salvation comes through faith alone? Only Protestants? Only Catholics? Both Protestants and Catholics Neither Protestants nor Catholics. That could be a trick question. Which of these religious groups traditionally teaches that salvation comes through faith alone? Protestants, Catholics, both Protestants and Catholics. Neither Protestants or Catholics. 25. Which Bible figure was willing to sacrifice his son for God? Job, Elijah, Moses, or Abraham? Which one was willing to sacrifice his son for God? Job, Elijah, Moses, or Abraham? 26. The Dalai Lama is Mormon, Hindu, Buddhist, or Jewish. What is the Dalai Lama? And Maimonides... was mormon hindu buddhist or jewish i was after this thing came out i happened to be listening to glenn beck on the radio show and he pronounced it maimonides and he had no idea which just displayed his total lack of education maimonides was mormon hindu buddhist or jewish Which of the following, 28, which of the following statements best describes what the U.S. Constitution says about religion? One, Christianity should be given special emphasis by the government. Two, the government shall neither establish a religion nor interfere with the practice of a religion. Or three, the Constitution does not say anything one way or the other about religion. By Constitution, they include the amendments, i.e., the Bill of Rights. Christianity should be given special emphasis. The government shall neither establish a religion nor interfere with the practice of religion, or three, the Constitution does not say anything one way or the other about religion. Twenty-nine, what is the prominent religion in Indonesia? Hinduism, Buddhism, or uh, Christianity, or Islam. What's the predominant religion in Indonesia? Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, or Islam. 30. What is the religion of most of the people in India? Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, or Islam? 31. Which of these people developed the theory of evolution by natural selection? Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, or Clarence Darrow? And then the last one is, and which of these court trials focused on whether evolution could be taught in public schools? The Scopes trial, the Salem witch trials, or Brown versus the Board of Education? Okay, let's see how everybody did. Anybody have any questions? Want to go back here? Another question again? Anybody want anybody to give an answer? Okay, we'll go back and run through this fairly quickly. Okay, which Bible figure is most closely associated with the Exodus? Moses. What was Mother Teresa's religion? Catholic. Which of the following is not part of the Ten Commandments? You yeah, have the golden rule, do unto others. Uh, when does the Jewish Sabbath begin? Friday. I'm not going to ask who thought, who put down Saturday, but that's kind of a trick question if you're not thinking you didn't get enough sleep last night. Is Ramadan what? <coughs> Islamic Holy Month. Sixth, which of the following best describes the Roman Catholic teaching about the mass? Yeah, that actually become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, seven, in which religion are Vishnu and Shiva worshipped? Hinduism. Eight, you know, anybody who watched uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom ought to get that one right. Eight, which figure is most closely associated with remaining obedient to God while suffering? Job. Job. Nine, what was Joseph Smith's religion? Mormon. Mormon. Ten, according to the U.S. Constitution, are U.S. Supreme Court, is a public school teacher per- permitted to lead a class in prayer or not? No not, no, not permitted. Eleven, according to rulings by U.S. Supreme Court, is a public school teacher permitted to read from the Bible as an example of literature or not? Yes, it is permitted. Twelve, what religion do most people in Pakistan consider themselves? Buddhist or what? Muslim. Muslim. Thirteen, what was the name of the person whose writings inspired the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther. Uh, Fourteen, which of these religions aims at nirvana? Buddhism. Buddhism. Uh, Fifteen, which uh, one of these preachers uh, participated in the First Great Awakening? Jonathan Edwards, 16, Who is the king of the gods in ancient Greek mythology? Jesus. Zeus. What's the name of the holy book of Islam? Quran. Quran. Uh, 18, is an atheist what? Does not, Does not believe in God. An agnostic is someone who is unsure. Is unsure. What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. Uh, what are the first four books of the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Uh, when was the Mormon religion founded? After 1800. Uh, the Book of Mormon tells the story of Jesus Christ appearing to people where? In the Americas. 24. Of which of these religious groups traditionally teaches salvation comes through faith alone? Only Protestants. That's the answer they're looking for. Uh, 25. Which Bible figure was willing to sacrifice his son for God? Abraham. The Dalai Lama is Buddhist. Maimonides was Jewish. See, he he was one of the greatest rabbis in Judaism in the Middle Ages and one of the greatest philosophers because of his commentaries on Aristotle. Which of the following statements best describes what the U.S. Constitution says about religion? Right. Number two, uh, what is the predominant religion in Indonesia? Islam. Islam. What is the religion of most people in India? Uh, Hinduism. No. Secular. Secular. Yeah. And it's Islam in in India, yes. see that's why Pakistan and India split was the Muslims went with Pakistan, and uh, the and Hindu went. Well, Indians that you'll talk to will say say that that the reason for the split was that Pakistan went Muslim and India was Hindu. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, I insisted on it. You know. Yeah, oh, I know, I know. That's, that's historical, but things could change. Which of these people developed a theory of evolution by natural selection? Darwin. And which of these court trials focused on whether evolution could be taught in public schools? Scopes trial. Okay, how many people met, got all but two or one or perfect score? Y'all did good. Y'all are smart, very good. I'm not going to go any lower than that, so. You can go out, you can do a search on the Pew, uh, Pew Research Poll and take a look, and they, they've got all kinds of data there on how it broke down as to who knew what. But it turned out that atheists and agnostics knew more about world, did better on all the questions than Protestant evangelicals did. I shouldn't surprise anybody with the level of teaching in most churches. Yes, why? They do. Are you sure about that? I would not. I would disagree with that. Having gone to a Catholic school. Well, that that is not official Catholic dogma, based on both the Council of Trent and Vatican II. Well, some people, you, you, it's really tough. And, and having, having talked, having gone to, gone, I got my master's degree at University of St. Thomas, sat around with Jesuit priests all day long with another Dallas guy, and we had all kinds of great discussions. It's just like sitting down talking with a Mormon. They have parsed their words so much that you have to get, you know, it's like Bill Clinton said, what's the meaning of is, you really have to define that. And you have to get really get below the surface because they will say the right thing, but they don't mean what you mean by it. And you, sometimes you have to have long conversations over a long period of time before it finally comes out what they mean by it. Like uh, I had one person tell me one time, "You really are learning a lot, of, earning a lot of grace." <laughs> I was a Catholic, so it's it's how they define their terms and it gets really mushy so it's really important to ask questions uh and keep asking them and pose situations and things like that okay let's open our bibles to hebrews chapter 3 hebrews 3:18 3, hmm i mean 13:18 why am i got to get my glasses cleaned hebrews 13:18 we'll Probably come close to finishing up this evening. This is where we get into the um, the concluding statements in this epistle. The writer uh, moves out of his uh, final exhortation in verse uh, 17 to some just some closing comments or his um, his conclusion. He says, "Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience." Conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, this is just a simple exhortation to pray, a an imperative for uh, that they should have him on their prayer list, and that they should be praying regularly for the writer of this uh, this epistle. It's given in a second person. Uh, plural, so it's addressed to all of those who read it, it's a present imperative, which means this is supposed to be just a standard uh, characteristic, standard behavior in the life of any believer. We are to be praying for others, intercessory prayer. We should have a prayer list, and you should keep, a, keep track of various prayer requests and how they are answered, how, they are, how God um, fulfills those requests. So he begins by saying, pray for us. So he's with a group. It's not just him. So it would include, um, if this was an apostle, it would include his entourage. If he is an apostle so- associate, uh, then it would include those who are with him. So he says, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience. And this word for confident is a really interesting word in the Greek. It's the word "patho," and "patho" and uh, "pistuo" are etymologically related. "Pistuo" is the Greek word for faith, to believe, and "patho" is the uh, Greek word for, con- uh, for, for to persuade. Uh, a few times it's translated believe or trust, but it is primarily has the idea of of persuasion. But it shows that there is a close relationship between belief and the intellectual act of being persuaded that something is true. They are different. There have been some that have come out of the free grace movement. This caused a lot of division a few years ago that have tried to argue that they were the same thing, that that you don't really have a volitional decision. You're just persuaded. And when you're persuaded, you believe and uh, sometimes you have to figure out what people are what the bad guy is that they're trying to argue against and and that usually didn't come out in the discussions and the bad guy that they were trying to argue against is a view that you have to be always know when you made a decision for Jesus and that you always have to and a lot of times kids don't know that kids just can you know they grow up they grow up in a house where they always hear the gospel and when they're in their twenties or thirties, they just they they can't really pinpoint a time when they believed in Jesus, but they went about it the wrong way by by making this kind of emphasis, and it caused a real, and it's caused a big rift in the whole free grace movement. This is why the 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 group associated with Bob Wilkin and Zane Hodges, John Nimmala, and this crowd were arguing for what they call passive faith, that you're just persuaded. Uh, to, be, uh, to believe, and once you are persuaded, then you believe. It just uh, it naturally falls out. And so the, if those of you who were around for the first Chafer Conference, uh, I believe to, to, that was when Tommy Ice had a, had to have a stint put in his heart, and so we uh, plugged Nemo in for a second paper, and he presented a paper on this, caused a big uh, disruption and problems with Chafer Seminary and other things, and this is just an erroneous position it, um, the word split because they emphasize different things. Persu- you are persuaded and then you believe. They are two parts of process, but they are not identical. And faith is volitional. Whenever you're commanded to do something, that always is addressed to the volition. So patho here it doesn't have the idea of, faith, uh, of trust unless it's a sense of, uh, the, the King James translated confident, which I don't think is the emphasis here. It's, we believe, uh, uh, the, the writer is saying we believe or we we um, uh, are persuaded by our own lives that we have a good conscience. They evaluated themselves in terms of self-judgment, self-evaluation, and believe that they are living according to the norms and standards of the word of God. Conscience here refers to that part of the uh, that immaterial part of the soul, that is where our norms and standards are are stored. And so, to have a good conscience means that you are living according to those norms and standards. And to not have a good conscience means that you would be in violation of those standards. And so he says we've had a good we have a good conscience. And then he expands on that in the next phrase, in all things, desiring to live honorably. And this really isn't the word for honor here, which is the Greek word me. It's a an adverbial form of kalos, with the omicron s, is is uh, it's k a l o s, and it means to live well or live according to the standard of the Christian life. It's relate the root word here relates to being good, to live good, to live well, to live right in some context so they they are living according to their norms and standards which means they are living well or living correctly and that means that they are they're living according to the standards of the Christian way of life so but that's what he is emphasizing it, it should be the focus of prayer is that they continue to live according to the standards of the word of god so there's two things we learn from this number 1 we should be praying for our leaders for the pastor, for deacons, for Sunday school teachers, for those who are in any position of leadership in the local church, we should be praying for them that as they live their Christian life and as they are uh, walking with the Lord, that they can live and live well in terms of their spiritual life and live according to the standards of the word of God. Uh, second thing in terms of application is this should be part of our own prayer focus in terms of our own lives that we can live individually we should be praying that we can live well live according to the standards of God's word and so there are two aspects of application there uh, but that's the emphasis pray for us for we're confident or we have are persuaded we believe that we have a good conscience and all things desiring to live to live well And then verse 19, but, and so it starts with this contrast, just a slight contrast. Uh, It's more of a movement. It moves to the next level, as it were. Uh, But I especially urge you, and this would be not just urge, but it's an exhortation. uh, It's a challenge. I especially urge you to do this. That is, pray that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, it's sort of to do this that I may be restored to you sooner, that being restored doesn't sound like it fits with what he said before, so there's an ellipsis here based on the fact that he knows his readers understand his position and where he is. But all this tells us is that he seems to be somewhere else, and there seems to be something that hinders him from being with them in their presence, but we don't know what that is. Just that's all we can infer from this is that, and he's probably, at first uh, supposition would be, well, maybe he's in prison, uh, as Paul was in prison. And, and But there's a mention of Timothy being uh, uh, set free in verse 23. So I, I would think that if that is what is hindering him, that he would say it a little more clearly. So we're not sure just why he isn't able to be restored to them at this particular time. Then he comes to his closing uh his closing uh, benediction or his closing prayer blessing upon uh, his readers. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, and then he goes on to say, Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we have this brief closing prayer and statement that focuses on what the goal should be. Now, if you break this down, these two two verses, a lot of extraneous material is here. Not unnecessary material, but it is extraneous in the sense that it doesn't relate to the main idea. The main idea has to do with may God do something. May God make you complete in every good work. Everything else modifies either God or making you complete or equipping you in every good work. So verse 20 focuses on identifying the God of peace and attributes related to God that, that focus our thinking on the, the message of the book. He says several things. He says, first of all, he is the God, first, of peace. Second, he's the God who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Third, he identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep. And then fourth, he makes this statement through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, this is a very unusual verse, and commentators really struggle with this, and it's not an easy solution. May the God of peace... Who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, who brought up is one word it's a it 's a participle in the Greek. He brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep modifies the Lord Jesus, so let's just take that out in our minds. He brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is the only place in the New Testament that indicates that God the resurrection of Jesus is related to the New Covenant, and is on the basis of the New Covenant. And it's through the New Covenant. It's in plus a dative here. It's very clear, clearly stated this is a a statement of means, that God raises Jesus uh, through or by means of the eternal covenant. And that's a very odd way of stating it. But it would indicate that the resurrection then is based on the fact that sin Has been conquered, and if we can add some thoughts from Romans, it indicates that it is a statement or a validation of God for what Christ did on the cross in completely paying for sin, and it is that sacrifice that paid for sin that establishes or that is the basis for the new covenant. It doesn't inaugurate or begin the new covenant. This is where we get in that uh, a little bit difficult terminology. And theologians haven't settled on preci- precision in some of this terminology. The, it, the covenant was, uh, we could say, established in the sense that the covenant, the uh, excuse me, the sacrifice for the new covenant was made at the cross. But the covenant doesn't go into effect until the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. So all of the... the all of the aspects of the new covenant are yet future. We are not living uh, now. We are not experiencing the benefits of the new covenant as it is stated in the Old Testament. We are experiencing things that are similar to and foreshadow different aspects of the new covenant, but we're not. The new covenant is not here. The new covenant implies, as clearly states, that everybody is all the Jews are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit such that no one needs to teach their neighbor anything about the Word. There's just sort of this, this intuitive grasp of doctrine as a result of the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant. And I've heard seminary professors and pastors try to argue that what, what we learn from the Word of God, uh, the Holy Spirit teaches us, and that's the application. But that's not what the text says in in the Old Testament. So we have to get away from that. We're not living under the new covenant. then you get into the problem with amillennialists and postmillennialists who argue that we are in a form of the kingdom. See, the new covenant is related to the kingdom. We're in a form of the kingdom, and we're under. We're partially under the new covenant, but not fully under the new covenant. So you have this this terminology already and not yet. It's already here, but not yet fully. And this just sets up a... a uh, um, a duality that's that's just not biblical. It's not here at all. We're ministers of the new covenant because as a resu- which is what Paul says in Second in Corinthians, we're ministers of the new covenant, but only because as we proclaim the gospel and people believe it, then in the future they will experience full new covenant blessing. But not because they do that at this point. If if we're under the new covenant now at in, in any sense, if it is in a- action. If it's been inaugurated, then we've got some real problems with the kingdom. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of any more detail on this than that tonight because this is a major issue in the first three or four chapters in Acts, and we're going to um, be tired of this subject in about three months. As we go through this, because there's that it all relates to this transition period and and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Peter talks about in in Acts chapter two, uh, when he identifies what happened on the day of Pentecost with what Joel prophesies in Joel two, that this is what Joel, the prophet spoke of. And what we'll learn is that Joel, that um, Peter wasn't saying that this is a fulfillment in the sense of a fulfillment that Jesus was born in Bethlehem or Jesus would be the son of David, but it's, he's drawing a parallel that the ministry of God the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost wasn't a fulfillment of Joel 2 in the sense of a literal fulfillment because Joel 2 is talking about the day of the Lord when the new covenant and the kingdom are come into uh, being in history. And that happens at the at the end of the tribulation that's what begins the millennial kingdom and none of the things that Joel mentions in Joel 2:28 to 32 are mentioned in Acts 2 and what happens in Acts 2 which is speaking in tongues doesn't isn't mentioned in Joel 2 it's just a a parallel so what we see is that something new comes into existence on the day of Pentecost there's an outpouring of the holy spirit that is analogous or similar to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will occur at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom when the New Covenant is put into effect, but it is not the same thing. So uh, th- this this uh, uh, New Covenant, the everlasting covenant terminology here, is is very important to understand. So let's just start off with the first phrase, now may the God of peace, God is referred to many times as the God of peace because He is the source of, of peace. The Romans five one says, Therefore having been justified by faith, we have present tense peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one who is the source of peace. It is not talking about uh, some people struggle with the genitive here and try to make it attributive or quality or something like that, some sort of adjectival sense. But it is is it's a genitive of source. God is the one who's the source of peace because he is the one who provided peace in terms of the harmonious relationship between man and God. God is the one who designed the plan that restores peace between man and God, and God is the one who brought peace about by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that peace was uh, uh, was made possible because of God's grace. Uh, this is the peace that uh, Paul talks about, Romans fifteen thirty three. Now the God of peace be with you all. Again, this describes God as being the source of peace. And Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I just love this verse. Notice the juxtaposition there of the God of peace and the verb to crush. See, peaceful people don't crush things, do they? But God, who's the God of peace, crushes. He violently and completely defeats and destroys Satan and sends him to the lake of fire. So that ought to modify our view of peace just a little bit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says something else related to peace. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So again, this emphasized the idea that peace, that God is the source of of peace, and that those who are in right relationship to God uh, should experience that peace. Now, the next thing that this verse says, now may the God of peace, the next thing it states is the, his role in the resurrection, that the God of peace is the one who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ did not raise himself from the dead, but it was God the Father who was the one who raised him from the dead and brought him forth uh, from the grave. This is an expression of the Father as judge validating and verifying the completeness of Christ's work on the cross and that the Father's righteousness and justice were completely satisfied by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then we have the next phrase that modifies Jesus and refers to him as the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. This goes back to what Jesus taught in John 10, verse 11, which has its root in the Old Testament. I want you to notice in the next couple of slides here the connection between something Jesus said that comes out of the Old Testament. In John 10:11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, the shepherd is typically emphasized as the one who uh, leads and guides and provides for the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd in Psalm twenty-three, one Emphasize the provision of God, that he takes care of us. The Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want. There's no needs that I have. Because God is my shepherd. That completely uh, negates all need-based psychology, which dominates uh, modern uh, psychological theory. We do not have needs. Not if you're a believer. Psalm 23.1 says you don't. God is your shepherd. You have no needs. Period. Don't talk about it. You're just arrogant. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This connects the role of the shepherd to the role of the high priest who provides the sacrifice. So the, Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd, and the shepherd will sacrifice himself for the good of the sheep. This also goes back to Isaiah 63, 11. Uh, then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them out, uh, up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock, as Moses being the shepherd of his flock, God's flock, the people, where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? So the emphasis of leadership and God's shepherding of the people is then uh, seen to be uh, directly related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. The verse goes on to read in... Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, every covenant is, is established on the basis of a sacrifice, right? We have the sacrifice of, that, that uh, you have it after Adam and Eve sin when God clothed them with animals. Obviously, the animals, animals had to uh, clothed them with animal skins. God had to skin the animals, which means they had to die. So there's a death there. There's sacrifice with the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. Uh, there's a sacrifice, with, sacrifice with the Mosaic covenant. And the new covenant is established by, by or through the sac- sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But here it is referred to as an everlasting covenant. It's not identified as the new covenant. And there are some people who come along and say this is a different covenant. But it's not. It, you have to connect this back to the terminology in the Old Testament. Which talks about um, let me skip ahead here, which talks about the um, everlasting covenant isaiah fifty five three incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of israel so isaiah fifty three God is calling Israel back to him and talking about something that will take place in the future. Now, Isaiah wrote in the uh, 7th century B.C., and he is often predicting the coming destruction of, uh, of Judah by uh, Babylon. And so he pictures Judah as being the apostate nation, but God wooing them and telling them that he will make a future covenant, an everlasting covenant with them. The only covenant that could fit would be the new covenant. Isaiah 61, 8 for I, the Lord, love justice; I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and will make them an everlasting covenant. Talking about the future uh, generation, and the uh, section around Isaiah 60, 61, 62, all relates to the future millennial uh, kingdom. Jeremiah uses the term as well in Jeremiah 32:40 and Jeremiah 31. Uh, 31 to 33 is the only passage that specifically uses the name New Covenant. But the next chapter is describing it. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. No more negative volition. Jeremiah 50, uh, verse 5, They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant or everlasting covenant that it will not be uh, forgotten. Here's another good verse in uh, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-six. God said, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will establish them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. That occurs in the new heavens and new earth. This is, is, remember, Ezekiel 37 is right before Ezekiel 38 and 39, which occurs during the tribulation period, and then Ezekiel 40 and following describes the uh, tribulation temple. So Ezekiel 37 is describing that new covenant that comes into effect with Israel at the end of the tribulation, uh, tribulation period. And then we have a connection between uh blood and the covenant in Zechariah nine eleven. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And Zechariah focuses on prophecy and the coming of the Messiah. So all of this sums up what we find in verse twenty, uh explains it. May the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, God the Father was the one responsible for the resurrection. Uh, Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep, pulling in all of those analogies from the Old Testament, uh, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. He's the one who made the sacrifice. Now we get the completion of the thought. God May God make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So first of all, we have this verb that's translated make you complete, which is the Greek word katartizo. There are various cognates of this word. There's artizo, there's uh, um, kathartizmos, which is the noun, and they all have to do with something like preparation, uh, equipping somebody for a task, preparing somebody for a task, Um, giving someone all of the things that they need for a task. Task, There's also a noun related to this verb, katartesis, which means the process of maturation or growing to maturity. So the idea here is may the God of peace make you complete or bring you to maturity or equip you so that you can be a fully functional, uh, mature believer. This connects to a couple of other passages in Scripture. In Ephesians four, eleven and twelve, in verse eleven, we're told that God gave certain gifts to the church, uh prophets, apostles, prophets, pastors, and uh pastor and teachers and evangelists, for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying, that is, the maturing, the strengthening of the body of Christ. So the, spiritual, the spiritually gifted leaders are given for the purpose of training or equipping the saints, so that they can grow to maturity, and uh, that the body of Christ might be edified. And then Second Timothy 3:16 and 17, we find this word in, in equipped, katartismos. Uh, all Scripture is given by uh, inspiration of God, or is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equ- equipped for every good work. So how are you equipped? Through the teaching of the Word of God. It is the Word of God that gives us what we need to be equipped. This is the same thing Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen. Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. So it is through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, that the believer is mature. This is how God works. Some people trip over these verses, and they look at this and say, well, God is working in you. Does that override your volition? No, not at all. God is working in and through us, through God the Holy Spirit, and through the Word of God to bring us to maturity. This is the same thought that's expressed in Philippians two twelve to 13. Paul says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not talking about phase one justification there. He's talking about the ongoing process of sanctification. And it's that same idea that we are to be engaged in learning, studying, applying the word of God under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, working out our, and we would say, sanctification, uh, our being saved from the power of sin. Uh, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you. See, you see both aspects here. On the one hand, we work out our salvation. We exercise our volition to go to Bible class, to learn the Word, to walk by means of the God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit stores it in our soul, brings it to memory for us to apply it. We make a volitional decision to apply it. Uh, we're working there, but it is God who works in the process through God, the Holy Spirit, to bring about uh, our desire to serve him and to do his good pleasure. And that word good pleasure is also found back in Hebrews uh, 13, 2021 20, that we are to do. We are working, um, he's working in us to do what is well-pleasing in his sight. So we want to live and think in a way that pleases God. We see the same idea in Romans uh, 12. Uh, 1 and 2, that we are to do His will. In Romans 12, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, that's your volition, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, that you may demonstrate in your life as you apply the word what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That word acceptable is the same word that's used back here in Hebrews thirteen twenty-one. that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Uh, Romans fourteen eighteen. Paul says, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. This is our motivation to please God. Uh, Ephesians 5.10, related to uh, walking in truth, walking by the Spirit, finding out what is acceptable uh, to the Lord, what is pleasing uh, to the Lord. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, Indeed, I have all and abound, I am full, having received Epaphroditus, the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, giving to support uh, pastors in this case, but just helping other believers financially, believers who need it, this is well pleasing, uh, well pleasing to God. So in verse 21, we see the completion of this blessing statement that, uh, we're, we're praying that God will make us, uh, complete in every good work to do His will, working in us what is well pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. He is the one who gets the glory. Then we come to the last final statements in the last three three or four verses. And I appeal to you or I beseech you, I uh, exhort you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation referring to what he has stated so this isn't your normal epistle like Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians, but it is, I believe, taken from a sermon and then, as I said, the introduction and then written down. It is a word or message of exhortation, which is a challenge to people to make a, to a shift in their, in their actions in their life, to quit veering off course, but they are to stay on course. So he says, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you in few words. Thirteen chapters. You might not think that was few words, but the writer of Hebrews did. And then he says, Know that our brother Timothy, this would be, most people believe this is the Timothy uh, that Paul um, uh, mentored, this is the Timothy that Paul trained, this is the Timothy that pastored in Ephesus, that was uh, the uh, recipient of First and Second Timothy know that our brother Timothy has been set free. We didn't know he needed to be set free, did we? It's not mentioned anywhere in Acts or anywhere in either 1st or 2nd Timothy, so this indicates that uh, the writing of Hebrews is later than those events, which would put it close uh, a- after the probably after the uh, death of Paul. It could be right around the time of Paul, but this is the only time that we have any indication that, that Timothy was uh, perhaps arrested or imprisoned. prison. Andy, the writer, says that he is closely associated with Timothy, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. So he would travel uh, with Timothy to come to visit uh, those to whom he is writing this letter. And then he says in um, uh, verse 24, Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Now, this is a particularly uh, curious statement. Those from Italy, does that mean that the writer is in Italy? Probably not. The way the phrases are used in um, uh, in Greek, it will probably indicate that he is not in Italy, and there are some with him, some believers from Italy who are with him, some from Rome, some other places who are with him that are known to his recipients. Neither his recipients nor uh, nor, himself, nor, nor he himself and those with him are in Italy, but they have some with him, some believers from Italy there. And so he simply says, those who are from Italy greet you. And then he closes out in verse 25, grace be with you all, amen, emphasizing God's grace. It's articular in the Greek indicating the grace, that is the grace of God be with you all, Amen. And so we come to our closing, our conclusion on our study of Hebrews that we started somewhat five years ago. Next week, I want to come back and just tie it all together again, our final flyover, so we can pull all the different threads together and be reminded one more time what we've learned in Hebrews, what we've covered, go back over, spend a little more time to pull the first few chapters together because it's been a while since we were there. And then in two weeks, we will start... Romans. So that's, that, that should be a challenge. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study uh, through the book of Hebrews to recognize that even though it is written to a group that ha- is very different from us and has some different challenges, we have similar challenges. And the lessons in Hebrews are very pertinent to our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. We pray that, that we would Uh, be able to go back and read through Hebrews now with a much greater understanding of what is uh, being said and what is being taught here, and that God the Holy Spirit would use all of these things to spur us on to greater spiritual growth as we focus on the future, living today in light of eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.